32 counties. United by people. My name is Una. And my name is Andrea. And this is United, United Ireland. Ireland. Every week on United Ireland, we go under the hood of issues in Ireland beyond the headlines, bringing you smart people who know what they're talking about. But in order to do that, Andrea, what do we need? Show us the money, honey. Um, we'd love you to sign up to our Patreon and help us to continue to do this. And thank you so much to all of our Patreon crew. You're solid people and we appreciate uh, your participation. Uh, speaking of showing the money, this week on the podcast, we're talking about the crypto crash that shook the digital currency ecosystem. Is this the outcome of a network of Ponzi schemes collapsing? Or is it is it just that the crypto market that's going to be the answer to all of our prayers is just having a little, little bit of a moment? We're going to be joined by Alex Hearn, who is the technology editor of The Guardian, to answer your questions and everything you wanted to know about the crypto crash, but were too bamboozled to ask. I love that word bamboozled. It's a good one. It reminds me of Joey's show in France. <laughs> <laughs> First up, it's the State of the Nation. Andrea, what's going on in Ireland this week? Well, uh, continuing to go on is uh, the National Maternity Hospital. After all the opposition, all the debates, all the questions, it uh, the deal was signed. The 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 show must go on. Um, even though the majority of supporters that came out in it was um, the the consultants in the current maternity hospital. And you can't understand why they would ever be the ones saying, look, it's all cool, guys, even though they've nothing to do with law and they just need a really new hospital. Mm. I'm really confused by uh, the general media commentary around it, how it hasn't, because there's been a lot of like, um, stuff around repealers have gone too far and this is what, you know, all that kind of stuff. And to, I, I'm, I'm wondering why people aren't actually pulling back and going, this is about trust in government. This is about transparency. This is about people understanding that deals that were committed to a good few years ago may not have been very solid. And the, the outcome of that is something that people don't necessarily trust because it has been very opaque. There's been multiple stumbling blocks. The government has admitted that, you know, Micheál Martin saying a couple of years ago, no, it actually ha it absolutely has to be on public land and all that. I don't understand why people are manufacturing this kind of fake division in society around feminist discourse and what is actually something that's about we don't want things done badly anymore. This doesn't feel like it's solid. Why isn't this better? So I think that the media commentary has really let itself down collectively on that. Well, I think in terms of why is it not better, we'll come to it later in the show. But we just have to look at the rebranding of the passports as yeah. opposed to why we would not make things better. We would just rename them. But we'll come to that. <laughs> what else has been going on? Um. There was an airport brawl um, in the airport, funnily enough, um, and the people involved obviously were, um, it was a scary occasion. People shouldn't have to see that gun on their holidays and um, there was a lot of aggression and violence, fine. But as an aside to that then, uh, a group of people who happened to be travellers were profiled 
um, and asked to leave their duty free taken off them, um, even though they were just in the bar having a drink um, in a separate location, and then they weren't able to take their flights. So, oh my god, that's desperate. Yeah, um, there was like people, eyewitness accounts of it, um, and then the police made them delete their content of their videos and photographs of what was happening and under legislation that is not really, um, doesn't allow for that to happen. So there was um, a lot of police pressure, but the people who who had happened to, there's a couple who saw each other who didn't know each other, but they were, were, they came together on Twitter and they were like, um, what can you do but give in when you've got, um, burly guards being like delete that delete that um but so there's an issue around police power and and how hard that is coming down but also on the profiling of people in the airport um obviously around an awful situation that happens but mm. yeah what else is going on um Dunleary Ratdown development plan um we there's a lot like whenever the development plans come out that are trying to make the cities or places better and have a, a like a, a long-term plan for what places should look like and they're always faced with oppositions and um, when those oppositions do not go the way of developers it seems in Dublin City Council it was trying to uh, stop built rent which aren't no, no good to anyone. Um, but in Dunleary Ratdown, uh, three d- separate developers are taking legal cases against the develop against the rezoning of South Dublin residential lands for other purposes. One of them, uh, the land was rezoned for a school, and uh, the developers are saying, "No, that's not uh, going to make me money." Um, so there, it just is very frustrating when you see, um people and democracy trying to move forward with development plans to make the place better that it's just uh, stuck with legal challenges mm. and especially the context of board panola's judicial reviews just like failing all of the time i think i think we're going to end up with loads of issues with the um the rezoning of land and national development plans or, or previous ministerial executive orders essentially overriding the local ones. And you really see that in places like uh, South County Dublin that people have already a particular opinion of. It's like, well, why shouldn't you build loads of stuff in the cliffs in Dorky? And it's like, do we actually want to um, damage uh, land or or build things in the wrong places or just throw up these developments instead of actually looking at, at urbanism and suburbanism and building communities. So I think we're going to end up in a similar situation to what we ended up with in the in the the fake housing boom where loads of things were built in the wrong places and not properly resourced. Um, and finally, the Uvalde shooting um, where the children and teachers were shot by um, an 18 year old who went in and legally purchased uh, two guns and um, before he went in and killed his grandmother and then went to the elementary school um, again the question of gun control arises and the frustration that feels like nothing will be done and how trying to understand how there can be pro-gun politicians and how they can stand over guns with blood on their hands at this stage. It's awful. Absolutely awful. But we're going to switch over to the digital sphere 
Are you ready to learn about coins that potentially may not have any value? Are you ready to buy the dip and go to the moon? Yes, we are now going to talk about the crypto crash. In recent weeks, you will have noticed um, that cryptocurrencies and the systems that uphold them have been on a bit of a wild ride. Crypto itself, of course, has become this weird, I don't know, strange dividing line in culture, um, seemingly broken down between evangelists and skeptics. But of course, the reality resides somewhere in the middle with the prospect of digital currencies becoming dominant, quite real, and simultaneously the lack of regulation and Wild West aspect of Chris crypto landscape uh, having massive teething problems and stumbling blocks and also outright nonsense happening as always happens when there's a book to be made even if that book feels less tangible uh, than previously. Alex Hearn is the UK technology editor of The Guardian uh, who's been across a lot of this stuff lately as we navigate the transition to virtual worlds and digital money. Uh, So we're going to get into what happened with the latest crypto crash and what the ramifications are. Thanks so much for joining us in United Ireland, Alex. Thank you for having me. Now, I want to, let's see if this narrative is real. The rise of crypto during the pandemic. Is that an accurate thing, you know, that amateur investors and, and hobbyist kind of Reddit meme stock market players have caused things to become a little chaotic right now? It's it's one of the one of the stories I've been telling as well. Certainly, I think uh, there's a big underlying thing to a lot of the craziness that we're seeing and have seen in uh, markets generally, which is in the pandemic. Um, very quickly, there was a divide in how people were doing. A lot of people struggled financially during that period, but a lot of people found themselves still earning the same amount of money they had, but suddenly with no expenses. They weren't commuting. They weren't going on holiday. Their opportunity to eat out had been cut. Their opportunity to go to the pub had disappeared. And they had a surprising amount of cash to play with. That was even more true in America, where stimulus checks of of thousands of dollars were landing on your doorstep um, periodically. It was for some people, a a sort of a good time. Um, And that led to, I think in part, the rise of of trading as a game, of um, people using apps like Robinhood to kind of treat the stock market as a a way to take that extra cash you have lying around into even more cash, but but be just just an activity, a hobby, Um, in, in a way that was a few years ago, a, a really minority pursuit, you know, day trading. Uh, it now became an activity that hundreds of thousands of people around the world were doing on a daily basis. And the stock market's quite limited, right? There's there's regulations around the world. Uh, you're limited to publicly traded companies. The volatility is fairly low. Robinhood allows you to do highly leveraged bets that do mean you can make a lot of money very quickly. But that's nothing compared to what happens if you get into the crypto market, where the opportunity for you know, increasing your money a thousandfold in a month is theoretically there if you just play it right. And I think then that a lot of those people who got started buying stocks in Tesla and then moved on to GameStop and the Wall Street Bets narrative ended up in crypto because if you're trying to make a trade every day and double your money in 24 hours, that's the only place to be. You say theoretically there, theoretically make your money. What do you mean by that? Anywhere you can double your money in 24 hours, you can halve your money in 24 hours. Uh, and crypto in particular is one of the only places it's possible to tell yourself you are investing 
rather than straightforwardly gambling and still lose everything. You know, there's it's it's really hard to lose all of your money trading stocks. You can you can do poorly, but you're you're if you have capital in, you're generally going to have capital out. It is very, very easy to lose all of your money trading crypto. So let's talk about the May crash then, Andrea. Yeah, what part key parts of the crypto ecosystem would you say were involved in the May 2020 crash? Like maybe you could take us through stablecoins, Terra mm-hmm. USD, Tether, Luna, and then the impact on more conventional uh, crypto like Bitcoin, etc. So the May crash was one of those things, like so much, right? It happened gradually, then suddenly. It didn't start with these these complex stable coins, terror and so on. It started with the general market slump. Tech stocks started falling as, as inflation bit on growth prospects. Uh, that fed through into, into Bitcoin and Ethereum because actually for all the narrative of them being digital gold or in hedges against inflation, they move a bit like normal tech stocks. And so for the month of April, Ethereum and, and Bitcoin had been going down gradually. And then what broke the dam in early May was the collapse of this stablecoin called Terra. Terra is an attempt to make uh, what's known as an algorithmic stablecoin or a decentralized stablecoin. A stablecoin, like it sounds, is, is a cryptocurrency which is supposed to have a stable value. So typically one US dollar for one coin. That's sort of easy to do if you take the approach of being a bank. There's companies like Tether and USD Coin who will take your money hold it safe, give you a token in exchange, and then give you back your money if you give them back the token. There's problems there, crucially, that you need to actually trust them to keep your money safe and not go to Las Vegas and put it all on red. But if you do trust them, if they say release regular accounts, if they have good regulators behind them, that system can work. But crypto people don't like it because they don't like centralization. They don't like trust. They want everything to be algorithmic, to be decentralized, to be run according to public, cryptographically secure functions. And that's what Terra was supposed to be. Terra was basically a, a smart game, uh, a, pair of, a pair of cryptocurrencies called Terra and Luna, and a mathematical formula that lets you turn one into the other so that the value of one US Terra will always be one US dollar. The value of Luna fluctuates and Luna gets printed if, it, uh, if, if the value of Terra needs to go down and Luna gets destroyed if the value of Terra needs to go up. It's very smart and it works quite well on paper, except that it only works if Luna has any value at all. If Luna doesn't have value, then going, ah, oh, you can turn Terra into Luna every time it's overvalued is pointless because why would you want Luna? It, it's meaningless. For a while, Luna did have value basically because it was tied into something that looks, smells, and quacks like a Ponzi scheme, a promise to give you 20% of all of the money you invested back every year without fail. While new money was coming in because of that, that 20% could be paid out quite well. And while all of that was happening, Luna held value. Then after this May Bitcoin crash, people started panicking, pulling their money out of that system. That Ponzi scheme failed. Uh, the value of Luna plummeted, and the value of Terra plummeted as well. And a, a stablecoin that was never supposed to be worth less than one dollar ended up trading at nine cents. That 
that was a pretty catastrophic collapse, and that then filtered out into the wider ecosystem. The value of Bitcoin plummeted by $10,000 in a week. The value of Ethereum fell by a proportionate amount. And it's still not quite recovered. The, the freefall has stopped, but everything is hovering at a value of sort of half what it was two months ago. God, it's a wild crash, isn't it? But you know, when you're talking about the algorithmic stablecoin thing, which is basically, I mean, okay, not to get existential, like everything is made up ultimately, but this <laughs> feels particularly made up. It does kind of remind me of the, the scheming that was happening that preceded the subprime mortgage crash that basically instead of actually holding debt, debt was being kind of packaged up and sold off mm. or, 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 or traded effectively until there was this kind of, you know, massive hollow in, in what was actually being held by banks that then wasn't able to be paid back or whatever. Like, does it have that yeah. kind of feeling in it? It does. I think there's one important difference though, right? Like the narrative of 2008, is that you take all of these mortgages, you put them in a box, you slice up that box and you sell it off as tranches of mortgages, some of which yep. are more secure, some of which are less. You then take those tranches and you sell secondary instruments on top of them so that people aren't even betting on whether or not the mortgages they've got are going to succeed. They're betting on whether or not the bets on the mortgage success is itself going to succeed. And rapidly you end up in a situation where, yeah, people hold a bunch of investments that they think are hedged that they think are safe, but actually could, and in the end did, all fail at the same time. What we've got in the crypto economy is similar, except in that box at the start, we don't have mortgages, we have nothing. We have a box that contains nothing, that everyone says holds nothing. No, no debt on a real house, no assets secured against the real economy, but nothing. And if we take that box of nothing and we slice it up enough and sell it off to various other people and then make extra securities on top of that sliced off box of nothing, then we end up with a substantial chunk of the crypto economy, various promises and assets and securities built on top of no fundamental link to a real asset or economic instrument at all. And so that means it, it's hard to act surprised when and if all of these things fail at once, because there's not even a smidgen of a promise that, that at the bottom of this, underlying all of this, is something that is or ought to be a, a stable, substantial, long-lasting asset. You're talking about like uh, assets on built on nothing, but some people are making money. Some people are coming out with a lot of money. Is this like um, people with a few grand of the game, or is this... Uh, other entities coining it or who's making the money or is actually anyone making money? Because I suppose there's a lot of uh, thought around it. Like you can't take your money out or it, it doesn't really exist. So is right. making money? I mean, yes, obviously the first thing to say is a lot of people have made a lot of money, big and small. There are, uh, there are retail investors who did indeed buy low and sell high. Uh, and if you do that, you can make money and you know, you can do that with anything. Like you can make money at the horses. That that doesn't mean that there is uh, in in a bookie there is not a underlying asset that you are betting from. You are taking the money from the people who lose. Uh, uh, you know, winning money at the races is a zero sum game. It is almost the definition of that. As so we're in a zero sum game, there are winners, but definitionally there are exactly as many losers as there are winners. 
the crypto promise is that that won't be the case. Mm. That somehow there will be, if not everyone will be a winner, at least there is money and the creation of value that goes beyond simply transferring cash from some people to other people. That, you know, that remains to be seen. Currently, it's true it doesn't look like a zero-sum game because some people hold their money in cash and some people hold their money in crypto tokens that have a high paper valuation. The big question, right, is, is well, if we, if, we, if we talk about how a Ponzi scheme works, a Ponzi scheme, before it fails, everyone looks like they've made money. It's just some people have that money in dollars in their pocket because they've withdrawn it. And other people have that money in a paper account statement from the Ponzi scheme holder that tells them that they've made a lot of money. The problem is that a Ponzi scheme cannot work if everyone tries to turn that paper statement into real cash that the Ponzi scheme has to pay out. That's the fear for a lot of the crypto economy, that if it isn't a self-sustaining economic revolution, then people need to pull their money out. And if there is ever a catastrophic fear and too many people try to pull their money out at the same time, the last people are left holding the bag for everything. They don't just have an investment which is worth less than they paid for. They have an investment which is secured against cash that just simply isn't in the system at all. Mm. And one of the things that it requires is, you know, because you're saying they're like, yes, okay, there are these boxes of nothing, but I guess people are betting on the, on the future, right? That if if the future this holds value, then you're going to be quids in if you have loads of it now. Although I don't really understand that logic because surely if, let's say, you know, in five years, if the dominant global currency, for example, is Bitcoin, then because there'll be so much of it, surely it won't be hold the same value that it does now. But anyway, um, like what I, what I, I think like one of the things that it requires as well is this like massive buy-in, right? Because people need to be super evangelical about it. And I'm always really sus- suspicious of people who are just saying like, this is the answer and this is the whole thing. And, you know, if you're not in now, blah, 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 because that just, again, has all of the marks of um, Ponzi schemes and pyramid schemes and stuff like that. But like, what do you think is potentially the social impact of these crypto crashes or May in particular? Because um, like these kind of like fringe digital communities that suck people in, even if it feels like it might be a bit of a vibe, always seem a bit dodgy. And I think as well, like not to make a vast generalization, but there does seem to be a dominance of young men in crypto communities and you just have to think that if there's a massive financial hit in a particular demographic, like it may have specific consequences socially, politically as well. Yeah. I mean, the crypto crash will and has ruined lives. Um, you know, there's, there's absolutely no getting around that. I've spoken to a Ukrainian man who had $10,000, not just his life savings, but his wife's life savings and his wife's parents' life savings in Terra, this stablecoin that collapsed, you know, as, as he he told me, that's not that wasn't gambling. He put it in a stablecoin, a, a thing that was supposed to just be worth a dollar. This wasn't he went out and bought Bitcoin to try and make ten times his money back. This was he tried to put his cash in something that he was told was a safe and secure way of storing your money outside of the hands of Russian looters who he feared would invade his home, outside of the hands of you know a, a shoebox under the bed where he could perhaps keep cash money, but had to go to a bomb shelter every night. 
he's ruined. He is terrified for the future of his family. And that sort of story is being repeated around the world. Even, even for the people who weren't so you know, completely wiped out as, as terror holders, if you bought $50 worth of Bitcoin two months ago, you have $25 now. If you bought you know, 250,000 worth of Bitcoin because you put your down payment on a house in there because you wanted to make a little bit of money while you were sorting out your mortgage, you might not be able to buy that house anymore. If you remortgage your house, you might not be able to make your monthly payments. All of that sort of thing is happening and, and will happen every time crypto crashes. There's a huge incentive to double down on it now. You, you know, As with any gambling thing, you chase your losses. Um, you've lost half your money, but if you have a little bit outside of the system, maybe you invest it and hope for it to all grow again. The human pain of it, I think, currently is, is yet to you know, gel into a particular coherent movement. It will never be one movement. Some people will react to this with despair. Some people will react to this by blaming others, both inside and outside the system. I think I've been surprised by how few people inside the system are currently, you know, turning to government action. I sort of would have expected that there'd be a little more uh, call for regulation bluntly, that there'd be a little more uh, argument that this shows that perhaps you shouldn't be able to promise someone that their investment will remain a dollar if you don't have certain levels of you know, security of reserves in place. That, that doesn't seem to have happened yet. There's calls for people to be made whole, but largely as a sort of a voluntary action. The, the argument is just that the richest investors should lose money first. I think what we're seeing more is arguments that uh, basically that, that in some way this is the fault of regulators. We're seeing mm. arguments that this is what happens when uh, doomsayers and naysayers talk down crypto, inflict a panic where none ought to be, that there's, there's a widespread conspiracy theory that the collapse of terror was in some way engineered by major Wall Street firms like BlackRock and Citadel Security. That That seems completely baseless, but it's widely believed because it helps, I think, helps helps keep people sane, right? It's, it's hard to accept that you've lost a huge amount of money because you made a mistake. It's very easy to accept that you lost a huge amount of money because a malicious actor made you. And I think that's the narrative that we're seeing growing right now. Um, crypto still functions and almost feels subcultural, I suppose, and that it does, even though it has a lot of sponsorships um, in very particular areas and advertising targeting a very specific demographic. Why do you think that that is um, who's been targeted by crypto? I think the the subcultural aspect of crypto is is almost sort of a very important part of its sales pitch. You'll see every time people are defending it as a as an investment opportunity or as a as an exciting new sphere you'll see some comparison like crypto is where the internet was in 1993 or 1995 that's that's an argument right that this is a sector that's going to revolutionize the world making that comparison is inherently making the claim that crypto is going to be a globally important technology and it's also making the claim that no matter how overvalued you think crypto looks now, it will be only more valuable. But to make that claim, 
you have to argue that crypto is small because it's subcultural. You can't, you know, you can't argue that the vast majority of people who aren't invested in crypto have made a conscious choice to do that. You have to argue that they are uh, unaware of it and that they will will buy into the system when they are aware. You know, the internet in 1993 was small because it was hard. It was the, the benefits of it were rare for most people. Like in a world where computer ownership was was sparse, obviously the internet was going to be rare. What's unusual about crypto is that, you know, another argument is that like almost everyone in the developed world has a smartphone, has the ability to buy crypto almost instantly. They don't because, not because they can't, but because they don't want to. If you if you take that view, then you can't say that this is like sorry. If, if that that's why it's so important to argue that it's a, a subcultural thing, that it's counterculture, that that you're speaking to a small community. Because if you accept that you're speaking to everyone, and most people are deciding to ignore you, <laughs> the upside is quite limited. Yeah, and there's an irony in trying in in making that argument while also trying to make something dominant and hyper mainstream, you know, as well. Um, but before you go, Alex, and thanks so much for, for all your insight on this. Like, are there any jurisdictions that you think are particularly vulnerable to crypto going wrong? Like I'm thinking of, I'm just fascinated by El Salvador and, mm. and the, um, the whole Bitcoin city thing. It kind of reminds me of that city Akon was uh, going to build. Um, and also like South Korea seems to be particularly um, impacted by the latest crash. And obviously there are loads of uh, reasons for that with regards to how dysfunctional capitalism and, mm-hmm. and inequality is is there. And there yeah. have been some comparisons to the, you know, the, the pyramid scheme induced Albanian civil war in 97, uh, which sounds alarmist, but I suppose that they're also kind of valid when we're talking about people losing loads of money. Where right. do you think is particularly vulnerable? So you're right, you know, South Korea and El Salvador are the two the two really obvious ones. South Korea, because there's just huge retail uh, investment in a lot of this sector. Um, Do Kwon, the entrepreneur who founded Terra, is South Korean. Um, I think if, if the value of crypto crashes, a huge amount of normal South Korean people will be out uh, substantial amounts of cash. El Salvador is this, this weirder case where a, a semi-autocratic president has kind of decided to retool his country's economy around Bitcoin, depending on how cynical you are, either to um, milk uh, foreign crypto fans for all their money and just like become a little bit of a focal point for a, a particular form of new wealth, or because he thinks that there's actually a, you know, a, a real future in becoming this forward-looking cyber country. Either way, yeah, if, if the value of Bitcoin crashes much further, El Salvador will start to be really out. He's uh, he, the, the president has already been very publicly investing El Salvadorian funds in buying Bitcoin and has very publicly lost hundreds of millions of dollars doing so as the value of Bitcoin has continued to go down every time he buys more. I think, though, if we're looking about where's at risk, we can't ignore just kind of much of the developed world, those retail investors who are in Ireland, who are in the UK, who are in the USA, there's a lot of them. Um, they are 
Some of them are diehard crypto investors. Some of them are crypto investors and day traders. Some of them are people who have small pots of money invested in the stock market and who have a mortgage. If this if this thing collapses hard, or if even if just this stays at its current low value for long enough that people start needing to liquidate their holdings rather than hold out hope for it to increase, we're not going to see a 2008-style uh, widespread contagion, but we could just see yet another chill over the markets that means that whatever downturn we've got coming just gets that much longer, that much more painful as people need to start selling other things, selling out of their holdings in large companies to make up for their losses in crypto. It's it's never good when a Ponzi scheme collapses. And if that is what we're looking at here, um, it, it will be painful. It's a, it's a big, big thing. That said, like the thing I always say when I'm talking about this, I'm the guy who in 2013 said Bitcoin was overvalued at $33 a coin. <laughs> <laughs> I have been as wrong as it is possible to be about this. You could still and be right, Alex. <laughs> who knows, right? Um, it's a fool's game to make any sort of prediction about this. It is defined by one thing, and that's just pure chaos. And I don't know what's going to happen next. And anyone who says they do is lying to you. Alex Hearn, technology editor at The Guardian, thank you so much uh, for that insight. We'll definitely be back on to you again when the next moment of chaos occurs. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. What's getting in the sea, Andrea? Oh, it's a new one this week. Something I just thought, God, that's a bit left of centre for me to talk about. Um, It's on board Planola. No way. I swear. Um, And so the last few weeks there's been... um, stuff coming out every single like week of new stuff um, in terms of reports being changed, in terms of things being signed that had personal interest. And then yesterday, another one came out um, and it is on board Planola told an inspector to change report on South Dublin development under high court challenge. So very similar to what happened on the Dublin 8 development. Um, a report came back and um they decided that that wasn't actually the real report and that if they could uh, change the report for uh, before they would make the decision, new report comes in um, and lo and behold, the seven stories in Blackrock uh, with 101 apartments was signed off. Um, and that was Paul Hyde, um, who is the deputy who's under investigation, Michelle Fagan um, and Terry Prendergast represented at the meeting. Um, and Michelle Fagan was, in fact, the person who signed off the previous um, development that was uh, 400 metres from her home. Mm. Once again, your your ongoing, long running campaign about investigation into onboard Planola and uh, where the accountability is and where the transparency is has all come to fruition, Andrea. It's been it a long time. It's banana town that it's. It's, I just can't get over it. Now, speaking of It's Bananas, it's time for It's Bananas. I mean, what can you, what can you say about this week's It's Bananas? Ooh. So, 
Oh my, like we, we referenced it earlier. So Emer Higgins has been months, months campaigning for the change of the name of the uh, express passport to post passport because it's not very fast. And, you know, there's loads of delays. So people are getting frustrated because it's called express and they're not getting an express service. And so the solution to this, obviously, is to change the name. There's so many levels to the bananas aspect of this. There's so many levels. First of all, that you would actually focus on rebranding something as opposed to solving the issue. Okay, that's a given that that is ridiculous, but it speaks to the heart of Fine Gael's superficiality over actually doing a job. Okay, so we know that. Then making that your actual mission, your own campaign. Then thinking that achieving that was worthy of recording a video and posting it when people are like missing their holidays because of the backlog, which, you know, Michal Martin is like, there's not actually delays. There's just this kind of other thing that's happening. That's like a backlog type thing. Um, You know, anyway, again, his, his lovely little way that he like, you know, kind of frames things differently. So he doesn't actually have to be accountable for anything. And then the actual video itself. Now we do, we are major fans of um, stand-up comedian slash government TV, Emer Higgins. <laughs> um, she has just done wonders for online sketch comedy uh, during the pandemic. And this video was, I mean, it's just sensational. But also it's like, this person is a government TD. This person is a government TD. If you haven't watched the video, do it now because, I mean, obviously everybody has watched it because it's completely bananas. And it's just real, like, how you could go through all of the steps in your mind to think that this is a thing that you would say. And it's it's also just kind of, just kind of reminded me of like, is it like there would, this would be someone who would, you know, if there was some really important meeting going on in the door and people asking loads of really important questions would be like, stand up and just go, my cat had kittens or something. You know, it's just like, what are you talking about? And how are you talking about it? And how could you possibly think that this is something that people are going to be like, fair play, you renamed the thing to describe that it's actually crap instead of doing anything about it. And this, you're high-fiving yourself about this. The level of superficiality. I wrote ages and ages ago, I think a couple of years ago, about how Finnegale had internalised like the influencer mode of communication. And now that has just like gone into a real, like shroomy, surreal moment with all of their stuff. You know, like Neil Richmond being like, uh, posting all these lists of like, you know, Ireland's economy is booming. It's like, bro, unless you're going to stand on Kildare Street and print out that list in bulk and let people origami gaffes out of it. I mean, I'm not sure why this is of any use. So, Emer Higgins flying the flag for Banana Town, Fine Gael superficiality. I would like to do a throwback to Emer Higgins's other key moment of internet fame, which was when she did the video about the, the illegal raves oh my that God, were happening. Yeah. And that's stunning. To, to think that people might end up going to an organised ticketed event is just absolutely outrageous. Yeah, the presentation style is <clears throat> peak. It's really great. I just, again, she's obviously been voted in. Someone's buying this shit. Mm, I don't know. I think it's just like there's probably a Fine Gael vote that, I mean, 
there was a Fine Gael vote in her constituency. Um, but yeah, I mean, what can you say? I think when people look at this stuff, this is the ultimate disconnect with, well, not the ultimate, but it's one part of the disconnect with regards to Fine Gael. People look at people like Emer Higgins, you know, standing on the keys, doing a little video about how they renamed the thing to illustrate its crapness as opposed to doing anything about what's actually wrong with passport uh, uh, delays and stuff like that. And they go, how is this person so disconnected? How do they completely not get the issue? How are they so unlike how I communicate with my friends and my peers? How are they so inauthentic in their comms? How have they kind of gone full loop on that inauthenticity to think that they're actually doing a good job and that this is how people actually communicate or or how a politician should be communicating? And I, I just think this is the, the, the profundity that gets to the heart of how people look at Fine Gael politicians. And I'm just like, who are you, you know? And, and how are you so you know, disconnected that you're almost in space, you know? <laughs> space. Space. Speaking um, of space, I've got a few fave bits. Let's you. go. <laughs> yes. Time for our fave bits. Hit me with your cheery cultural pickings. First up, space. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Secondly, um, I've been sick, so my cultural bits are nil. So I'm casting my web further back to my time in Berlin um, where I went to see Rauschen Murphy again. And she's just the absolute queen. And now that you were there at that gig as well, so now we we can speak together about how wonderful it is. It was so amazing. Everything about it, like the cohesion of the show, the art and the narrative within it, how it ends with this like amazing reference back to the pandemic, back to lockdown, back to the um, how everything, how live stuff was con- consumed o- over screens, her movement, the band, the tunes, her voice, the fashion. She's she's just uh, just like hitting her stride in such a hugely impressive way. I and like. She's also the high priestess of the Irish diaspora as well. I think, you know, anytime she plays anywhere, everybody's just like, oh my God, we have to be there. The gig in Berlin ended with a chant of ole, ole, ole. I was literally like, do you think there's many Irish people here? (laughs) (laughs) It's so gas. She's an icon. She is. Uh, Also, um, my favorite bit is how intrinsic club culture is in Berlin. And like, I always feel like a sap when I'm talking about like, you know, in Berlin and like when you hear people going on about like clubs in Berlin, you're just like, it's eye roll. And then you go back and you're like, because it's true. And like everywhere you go, there's just electronic music in part of the day to day and not this like other like you go to the shop and or like on the street, there's like techno blaring out of the, sh- the local shop that's selling beers. There's like techno like on people's bikes as they're cycling through the city. There's like we were going to bed and looked out across the road. There was a little tunnel and there was like six lads 
with a huge sound system just blaring out techno and having a dance on their own and then like walking through the city like under an arch there was like a full like we were walking up the road it was like god there must be a club up here fab let's have a look no just three uh people with a full sound system a lights system under the thing just having a bop and it's Mm. just like it's everywhere in the day-to-day and it and People are just living their best lives and it doesn't have to be this awful thing. Like even we were going to get brunch. I'm on the brunch side of things now, but off to get eggs and we walk past Watergate. Everyone's kind of outside, techno blaring out of it. And everyone on the road is just cycling and going to get eggs and it's no big deal. And it's like 12 o'clock in the day. Fine. Yeah. I just love it. I'm back now from Berlin, as you know, Andre, after a long stint there. Um, and I, I hadn't gone out re- really at all because I was just uh, working the whole time. But um, I did go to Bergheim at the weekend on Saturday night. Went to Watergate because Colin Perkins uh, was playing. Shout out to Colin. And then dropped into uh, Bergheim for a few hours. And I hadn't been since 2019, I guess. And just feeling that energy again, um, in particular on the main Bergheim floor. Weirdly, the music in Panorama Bar wasn't great when I was there but um, oh, got my joke. yeah someone well that was after we got there but yes on good authority from Colin Perkins that someone actually played um, Cotton Eye Joe and Panorama Bar which is obviously I, mean, I assume there'll be you know whatever Burgoyne's equivalent of an Oireachtas committee set up <laughs> <laughs> to, to figure that one out um, but uh, yeah just that that epic sound system and that epic um feeling of of you know noise and energy and uh that gets into your your body in such a a, a particular way um on on that main floor uh i really needed it and uh yeah it was great just for a little bop on a sunday morning and then just cycle town <laughs> go for x go for x yeah totally what are your other fave bits? Um, I am catching up on your fave bits um, and book of the week. I um, I would like a round of applause. I am maybe two chapters away from finishing my first book in maybe five years. Let's get a round of applause in there. It is uh, Louise O'Neill's Idol. Um, it's a lovely book to read and I think it may have got me back into my reading world. So thanks a million, Louise. It's a great book. To be great a reader book. Again. Um, it just really is a change of your life when you start reading again. Mm. Um, like we all know that, but it's so hard to get away from your phone. But I've really, really made a big effort and I'm I'm nearly there. I used, to, I used to be the same reader as you. Like I'd read a book, two books a week. And then my phone happens. Anyway. And finally, my fake bit, Ava's next week. Absolutely buzzing for a trip up north to Belfast to go and see, because I've lived through this festival, through uh, watching it through Instagram stories. And I can't wait to be up there in real life, having a bop with the Nordies and a Whopper lineup and having a little adventure up north. Stunning. Stunning. What are your fave bits? So my fave bits, um, the International Literature Festival, Dublin's International Literature Festival is on at the moment. And I'm chairing a talk on Friday uh, between Mona Altahawi and Tori Peters, uh, both uh, veterans of our Book of the Week 
um, Mona's book, uh, The Seven Necessary Sins for Women and Girls, and Tori's book, Detransition Baby, which was obviously a massive uh, hit. Um, and uh, yeah, really looking forward to that. So if you want to hear um, Mona and uh, Tori talk with me, uh, asking questions occasionally. I'm super. What are you? What is? What are you talking about? Their books, or is there a subject? Yeah, the subject is. It's called busting taboos, and it's about kind of feminism and gender. Um, detransition babies, really kind of revolutionary novel. Apart from the fact that it's absolutely gas crack and so brilliantly written, it it's about kind of um trans parenting and things like that. Um, and, uh, all of the, the issues around, uh, parenting children, um, around trans relationships, around all that kind of stuff. It's an amazing, super fun, um, novel. That's just spectacular really. And then Mona is obviously a total icon. Um, and, uh, Headscarves and Hymans was her, um, uh, book that emerged from this very famous essay, Why Do They Hate Us About Misogyny? And um, she has subsequently uh, founded this amazing newsletter called Feminist Giant and everybody should sign up to her Patreon as well. And so we're going to be talking about gender, um, about uh, post-gender stuff, about um, contemporary feminism in the US um, where um, Mona and Tori live, I believe. We're going to be talking about all of that kind of stuff. And we're going to, I think from my own perspective, it's been a while since I've been doing um, public talks and stuff. I think it's about keeping it like vibrant and and fun and not getting bogged down in some of the very kind of nihilistic narratives that are ongoing and looking at the potential for contemporary feminist movements and feminisms right now, um, as well as um just discourse around around gender and uh yeah and and both of them uh kind of going off uh with their own absolute brilliance two of my favorite writers genuinely so i'm really really excited to be uh sharing the discussion between them so that's on at eight o'clock on friday this week um and it's in marion square uh at the literature festival's kind of whole uh, setup there and I think tickets are between 10 and 12 books or something like that so if you go to the um, International Literature Festival Dublin website you can pick them up there Gorgie. my other fave bits Beyond the Pale is happening June 10th 11th 12th and bringing uh, Utopia events there I think I was talking about them no you weren't you know what was you I? said was I've got some exciting news to tell you <laughs> stay tuned I will announce it soon so finally I can tell you my exciting news oh god please no but uh, so Utopia <laughs> Ireland which is myself and Connor Habib's uh, project asking what do you want and looking at uh, utopian processes um, we've devised a couple of events to happen up beyond the pale and one of those is how to talk to animals. So we're going to be looking at um, animal communication, literally, mythologically, and how perhaps that uh, communicating with animals in various ways, spiritually, literally, um, all that kind of stuff uh, may offer different, more optimistic and utopian solutions to the biodiversity crisis. All that hippie shit. All that. <laughs> and uh, and we're going to be doing some bird watching as well, I think, on the gorgeous Glendalough estate, which I'm super excited for. Yawning. And then um, the other event is called How to Be a Newspaper. And so myself and Sarah Maria Griffin, who our listeners will remember from the epic tarot reading of the Dublin Bay South by-election. Um, Sarah's obviously an amazing novelist as well. But, and she's also a brilliant zine maker. And so what we're going to do is 
consider what would media be like if it was actually coming from people's real experiences and what would um, a piece of media, an object, uh, look like if people actually reported on their own experiences of festivals. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be making zines with the audience about their own experience at the festival. I bet you there won't be one mention of Revelers. <laughs> there will not be. No, Revelers are banned. And both of these events are all ages events. So uh, if people have their kids or whatever at the festival, it's all inclusive and it's all going to be total vibe. Um, my other fave bits, drop everything on Inishears this weekend. I shall be staring at the sea, drinking a pina clada, as they are called. Excited about that. Um, and uh, so that's going to be a vibe. Also, um, La Kayla is a new event that Ireland's Edge are doing. Uh, you will know Ireland's Edge uh, from the people who brought you other voices. And that's happening on the 15th of June at Hen's Teeth in Dublin 8. And I am thrilled to be participating in it. I'm going to be talking to Cello, the amazing uh, drill artist. We're going to be talking about Gaelic drill. Uh, so that's uh, deadly. Looking forward to that. And there's also other bits happening, such as Ona Canavon. Um, people know him from the Cobblestone campaign, Dublin is Dying. He's going to be in conversation with Neil O'Connor. So there's just going to be great stuff going on there. So you can check out the Ireland's Edge website and get your little tickets to that. It's on 15th of June at 6.30 in Hens Teeth and Dublin 8. Um, my other fave bit is my favourite film so far this year. Uh, although I loved Come On, Come On. But no, um, Everything Everywhere All at Once. It is... Just a rollicking, brilliant, amazing, deeply layered, hilarious, fun, avant-garde, bursting with ideas uh, film uh, from the Daniels, uh, those two directors. And uh, I just absolutely loved it. It's a trip and there's so much going on in it and how grounded it is in various kind of uh, Chinese philosophies. It's just brilliant it's a24 produced it and and it's become their highest um grossing film that that particular uh studio those particular producers um their last big hit uh box office hit was uncut gems of course everybody's talking about it if you haven't seen it go it is super super vibrant and fun just what we need right now mm. now it's time for mm. book of the week So my book of the week on a revolutionary tip, Revolutionary Letters by Diane de Prima, uh, the iconic um, writer, activist, uh, anarchist, all around New York and California buzzer, um, who died in uh, 2020. She was in her 80s. Um, so Revolutionary Letters were these kind of letter poems that she would write uh, to her BFF, Audrey Lord. They went to school together, actually. And um, they're published with an additional 15 poems. They take the form of these kind of like really motivating revolutionary poems. And uh, I'm flying through it at the moment. I'm really enjoying it. Again, it's just like energy, like total, uh, mm. total vibe. So Revolutionary Letters by Diane de Prima. It's on Silver Press, this edition. So this podcast is produced by Andrew Mangan of Castaway Media. Crystal Clear gave us his Gina Chicken Roll for our soundtrack. Sarah Fox did all of our design. Kade.
on tuna chicken roll on Shacht and Shaw, Andrea. So I thought uh, this song would be relevant to crypto. It is Bross. I owe you nothing. (laughs) (laughs) I've been Una Mulally. I've been Andrea Horan. This has been United Ireland. That was Crypto Crash. <laughs>